You're listening to 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marley Meyerson JCC Manhattan. This season, we showcase all things books as part of the Lambert Center's Books That Changed My Life Festival, which is a new initiative that celebrates the transformational role books play in our lives. To learn more about the festival programming, visit book-festival.mmjccm.org. I'm Jason Blitman from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas, and on today's episode, I talk to audiobook narrator Michael Crouch. Michael and I first met over 10 years ago selling merchandise at a Broadway show, and as all good New York stories go, we also lived in the same apartment building in Harlem, just as he was starting out as a voiceover artist. Michael Crouch is a New York City-based actor specializing in voiceover. His audiobook narration has earned numerous industry accolades, including Audio Awards, Earphones Awards, and Audiophile Magazine's Golden Voice Lifetime Achievement Honor. He can be heard on national commercials, video games, industrials, on the anime series Yu-Gi-Oh!, as well as Pokemon. Now please enjoy Michael Crouch. You're my very first interview where I know the person already, but I'm I'm excited. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You went to school for musical theater. I did. How did you end up as a voiceover artist? What do you call yourself? Uh, you know, it, it kind of changes. Um Last night I said voiceover actor. Mm. I like actor who does voiceover more, but that's a little more of a mouthful. I don't know. None of the titles really resonates with me. So, you know, I'm just me doing voiceover. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. Mm -hmm. What was the transition like from theater into this? Uh, I went to college for musical theater, like you said. And then by the end of college, I kind of fell out of love with theater or at least doing theater. I still love mm. to watch it, but I realized that I loved the product more than the process. I just realized that I didn't have that particular bug anymore. So after college, I still felt an itch to act in some form, to still be creative. And so I was like, I just, I read a book about the voiceover business and started taking some classes. And I was like, oh, I love this. And it's still acting, just in a different format. Sure. I could have a terrible script, but I just, I enjoy being in the studio. I enjoy being in the booth. I mean, having a great script makes it all more enjoyable mm-hmm. in the end. But uh, I just, at the end, I just like to do this. The experience in theater, both with vocal training, um, but also dramaturgy, uh, like scene study, script analysis, do you feel like, are those skills that you feel like you're still using in what you're doing now? Yes. Anyone, <laughs> anyone yeah. Anyone who does voiceover has a leg up if they have a background in acting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a prerequisite, but you have a major advantage if you have a background in acting. For sure, because I mean... It's just, it's acting in front of a microphone as opposed Mm. to being on the stage. What is it like being solo, building a world by yourself? I think the, something that makes reading so unique compared to, I think, reading a play, for example, or reading reading a novel compared to reading a play, um, you know, the world is built in 
narrative versus only dialogue. And when you are solo in front of a microphone, building that world by yourself, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I I love the freedom I have in those situations where I, to me, it's all about my relationship with the text in front of me and me just kind of channeling what's on the page and seeing what comes out of me. Uh, as I go along, there are some audiobooks where there's uh, two or three narrators, and in those cases, we need to touch base to make sure our choices line up for characterizations and pronunciations and all that. And that can be great. But I do love the freedom of of doing a solo project where it's just all me just working from my gut and trying to channel the author, channel, you know, this text, the characters on the page and and see what comes out like the microphone is so sensitive so Mm -hmm. i'm always fascinated by how i can make an adjustment that feels so tiny that's so tiny but it reads very clearly on the track because Mm -hmm. the microphone you can't hide from the mic right and in that way i imagine it's a lot like film acting where it's these subtle choices that are Mm -hmm. making big impacts yeah i agree Uh, you talked a little bit about doing an audiobook with other readers, other narrators. Um, I assume, though I guess I shouldn't assume, that you're not in a booth together or you're not recording at the same time. Is that true? It is often true. Mm -hmm. Not always. It it depends. Uh, If it is a project where we each have our own sections, 99% 0.999% of the time, we never interact in person. We just Mm -hmm. record separately. We may touch base via email beforehand or something like that, or a phone call, uh, but we won't be in the same studio at the same time. But I just did a project where we were all in the same studio at the same time. Uh, That is rarer and rarer these days, but uh, it happens. We were all at Macmillan Audio at their studios. At what point before publication do you think would you say that this often is mm, it depends on the publisher <laughs> some mm-hmm. are more last minute others sure. like months in advance mm-hmm. um i'd say eh, if it's a download only audiobook which is more and more common these days one that's not being um produced on cd oh sure um then it's probably about six four to six weeks before publication that I get the offer. And then do you, are you receiving a galley of the book when you also get an offer? Do you, do you, what do you know about the project before signing on? Well, first thing they'll, they'll usually send me the publisher's summary description, summary, Mm -hmm. the retail um, description. Um, that's the the bare bones of it and they will tell me like give me an estimate of how long my portion of the book is or whether i have the whole thing so i can get an idea of how much studio time i'll need um and then the next thing i'll do for me is i'll um i'll google it and look up the cover because i I like i like to see the cover art it it inspires me uh it gives me because i'm a i'm a very i work in audio but i'm a very visual learner Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I actually, you know, people hear what I do, but I work with my eyes all day looking at an iPad and, you know, it starts with my eyes, then goes to my brain, heart, gut, whatever, then out the mouth. But the, it starts with the eyes. 
Hmm. It's so funny. Uh, so the the episode before this one that's released is with a cover designer. Ooh. And it's so interesting that you say the first thing you do is Google the cover because you are in turn seeing somebody else's interpretation of the work, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. You're not you're not taking the author uh, kind of at their face value. You're taking someone else's interpretation to kind of see how it gets translated through somebody else, which is I think is super fascinating that you are having that same experience as a reader is because that's their first experience with the book. Mm-hmm. So you look at the cover, and then what happens? I load it into this PDF app on my iPad called I Annotate, and uh, I open it up and read the book with my stylus in hand the whole time. And as I go along, I make marks that I know are going to help me read aloud without constantly screwing up. It's not planning what I'm, how I'm going to emphasize things or anything like that, but I just know the way my eye and brain work and that I'm making marks that will help smooth out the recording process. Mm. Can you give an example of what something like that might be? Oh, say there's like a multi-word subject. Like, I don't know. Let me think. Uh, like, Jason, the guy with glasses on who's wearing headphones decided to leave like so i will go i will underline jason the guy wearing glasses with the headphones so i see that that's one unit that's the subject of the sentence mm. not just jason but that whole chunk so that sure. kind of that helps my eye kind of land where it and go where it needs to go right so in that regard how many times how many passes through a book do you make before you start recording mm, i'd say one and a half so the first time I, I do read it all the way through with my stylus and i'll bookmark characters when they're introduced and I'll bookmark any unfamiliar words or anything that requires additional research. Uh, I try not to do all of that during the first pass, otherwise I may never finish reading the book. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I have my trusty notepad and once I'm done, I'll write down the title and a little bit of usually a gut response to the book, like any thoughts or feelings or images or memories that it brings up for me, just like in scene study class. I learned sure. that at Ithaca. Um, <laughs> Shout out to Ithaca. Yeah. And Arno Selko, my scene study teacher. And then I'll make a list of the characters. So I have a bird's eye view of all these people and what different voices may be required. And um, hmm. before I get into the studio, if I don't have time to do what I call my phase two um, for the whole book before, I'll at least take, say, the hundred pages I plan to do that day. So either the day before or the morning of, I'll go back and skim through those pages. So I just make sure I've absorbed what's going on in the scene so that mm. once I open my mouth, I've tapped into whatever active or emotional energy is present at the start of, of that chapter. And some technical things that I do in that phase two process is if there's a bunch of back and forth dialogue, I'll make like, say, a blue mark next to Jason's dialogue and then a red mark next to Michael's dialogue so that whenever I see that particular color, I know whose voice it is without mm-hmm. having to skim over to the attribution or or anything like that. What's the process like creating those? How do you differentiate between Jason's voice and Michael's voice? Uh, yeah, um, it depends on the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Often I will be able to find bigger or smaller ways to change the placement, the rhythm, the tempo, to make the character's voice sound different. Um, There are some 
genres that really are asking you to be more animated and playful with the characterizations on audio. I mean, you know, it's a it's a matter of interpretation, but when I read certain books like middle grade fantasy or something like that's not the time to be subtle. That's the time to really sure. dive into the characters and play around. Uh, but there are others, you know, if it's it's very serious literary fiction or something where I'm like, okay, this is telling me to to pull it back to make lighter characterizations. And maybe sometimes just a shift in the intention, tone or perspective is enough to uh, delineate the character versus a, a full vocal change mm -hmm. when it is a full vocal change uh what sort of work are you doing to figure that out ahead of time or is it something that you just kind of feel out in the booth and then you kind of commit to that moving forward it depends um mm -hmm. First, I'll look for any clues that are in the text. I mean, their voice may be described within the narrative, so I, I need to to hook into that as part of my job. Um, if someone's voice is described as nasal or, mm -hmm. you know, if they have a particular accent, then it's like, okay, well, that's what they sound like then. Sure. And I need to make it work. Uh, other times, I mean, a lot of characters, having done so many of these, they fit into certain archetypes that I just know what interpretation of that particular archetype works in my voice and body without mm. being pushed or anything like that that I can ease into like a, like a mom voice like I, I suddenly I always know like okay yeah the mom I know what to do there like I don't have to can, and, can you can you give me a little bit of mom <laughs> well uh, it, it always it, <laughs> And the caveat that it 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 comes down to personality in the end. Mm -hmm. So the personality will will dictate the exact tempo and tone and sound. Um, but okay, so if I'm I'm a guy do want who's voicing a female character, mm -hmm. um, a trick is to if I make my voice ever so slightly breathier, that's going to read on the audio as more feminine. So I don't know. I'll just Jason. I'm looking at you now. You have glasses. So it's like Jason has glasses. And if I just tweaked it, say it's like a teen girl, I'd be like, Jason has glasses. Just kind of up there versus right here. Oh, interesting. Jason has right. glasses. Oh, Jason has glasses. So you know. So those kind of little shifts within the the marathon of the narrative. Every time your ear hears that little shift, it's going to read as jan or whoever she is sure and it's to your point earlier of the tiny tweak on audio makes a big difference in mm -hmm. the grand scheme of things sure yeah. and i think to your point you just said that sentence three different times and each time it sounded differently um with just the tiniest change of breath um that's very interesting and how obviously i want to keep talking about books but uh, uh, I'm curious as you are a voiceover actor, um, in terms of creating characters in a book, does that, is it similar? Is it different to animation when you've done animated voices? Sometimes it's not different at all. If mm -hmm. it's a book that is asking for big animated characterizations, then I, I see no difference 
than you know if I were in an animation session. Sure. Uh, it's, it's but in same. terms of creating those characters, you know, do you think that like does a director of an animated film have more of an idea or guidance that you might receive versus something like an audiobook? I guess this is maybe a good time to talk about the relationship between you and a producer or uh, you know, I think folks who listen to audiobooks, there's there are credits at the end. They talk about directors. They talk about producers. What what is that uh, dynamic like in terms of the recording process? It runs the gamut. I mean, there are some directors that are very hands on, and then the other perspective is directors who don't give you any feedback at all and are just listening for mis- like misreads or mistakes you're making mm. as you go and point those out to you, which is very valuable. Sure. Um, To me, my ideal director is one who steps back and gives me space to do my thing, but is available to answer questions um, and then still does chime in at times with suggestions to enhance the performance. Can you share a little bit about kind of the nitty gritty? Like, how long does it take? When are you in a studio? Are you, how many hours? You know, like, what are the kind of brass tacks of it all? Um, If a book is 350 pages, let's say, you know, standard literary fiction. A typical recording day is usually 10 to 4 or 10 to 5. um, With a lunch break in the middle and shorter Mm -hmm. breaks as needed. Um. So like quick math, it's like five hours of reading. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, usually the expectation is that you'll get three finished hours done each recording day, which mm. is a lot. Yeah. Um, it all happens so much faster than I ever thought. When I got my first audiobook, I th- I was, you know, coming from a theater background and I had done some voiceover, but never anything long, long form like this. So I thought, you know, we'd go in the first day, have like a little table read or something and record like, eh, you know, 25 to 50 pages. And uh, that's not how it works. I mean, wow. you're expected to hit the ground running and work as efficiently as possible. Studio time is expensive when they even book you in an outside studio. I'll get to that. Mm. Um, but yeah, you like say it ends up being a, a six-hour audiobook. You'll do that in two days, two recording days. Wow, that's a lot of material. It's a lot of material, and I think you know a lot of books. That's also a relatively short book. I think you look at some mm-hmm. timing of of audiobooks, and they're really between ten and eighteen hours, which is a lot of reading. <laughs> yeah. It. It, it depends. The metric that I use, a lot of people use, is like roughly 9,000 words per finished hour of audio. Wow. So I just Googled word count of an average novel, and it's between yeah. 70,000 and 120,000 words. It's a lot. That's, that's a, quite a range. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. That's a big range. But also, like, even the low end, 70,000 words is, is a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> Audiobook narration is hard. Mm-hmm. One of the first things you said about uh, having a director, mm. that doesn't always happen. So the ideal scenario, Penguin Random House, every audiobook that, that they produce, if you want, they will book you in an outside studio. And they also hire a director for the project. Sometimes the director will double as engineer 
in certain cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's the ideal when you have two other ears in the room, one person who's dedicated to listening for the sound and helping you helping catch any mistakes that you make. Because it's a big manuscript. I'm going to swap words here and there. Like I'm going to sometimes add a that where there shouldn't be things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to have to correct those at some point. It's best to do it in the session when you sound like the you that was three seconds ago and three seconds later hmm. to match it. Um, and then the director will be there. The director often, in most cases, is the only other person in the room who's also read the book. Oh, wow. Uh, so I can turn to the director with any questions I have. We can brainstorm together. And they, they may already have ideas about how they want certain characters to sound, how they want me to approach certain sections, and, and they'll share that with me as we go. In other cases, there will be no director, and I'll only be with an engineer, which is great. It's better than being totally solo. Then the, the last one, which is, has become more and more common, unfortunately, is where I will have to do everything myself solo from my home studio. So I'll have to be my own engineer, self-direct, basically wow. do everything but post-production. I'll send the raw files to the editor and and then the editor and their team will actually do all of the post-production work. And so an expectation of of an audiobook narrator is that you also have the equipment. Yeah. Wow. And I I not to throw anyone under the bus, but the, some of these are major publishing houses too. Oh yeah. That's fascinating. What's your relationship like with them? I assume you've gotten to know them all very well at this point. You've done lots of books for all sorts of them. Yeah. I mean, I, that's how it happens is I don't book audiobooks through my agent. It's all through direct relationships with different audio producers at various publishing offices. And has that been the case the whole time? Almost the whole time. My agents did get me my very first audiobook, mm. but they really didn't do anything after that. But they sure. did help me open that very, very first door. And I guess once you're in there and people both at that publishing house, but other people who have listened to books that you've done want that guy. Yeah. Which is uh, great. That... Wait, am I remembering correctly that you built your studio into your bedroom and you like moved your bedroom into the living room? Is that right? I, I did do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a big, right now it's like, it's a four foot by four foot, eight foot tall vocal booth. And that's the one I had in the old apartment, but it oh, was funny. The apartment was small enough. And this thing that I'm in now was big enough that I had to rearrange the whole setup for this. Uh-huh. Do you ever get to talk to the author? Do you want to talk to the author? In most cases, I don't have a direct line to the author. Uh, The producer will be the Mm go-between. So I will, if I have any questions about the book, I'll send them to the producer who will relay them to the author. Some of the books that you've read are insane. The Great Believers is one of my favorite books. You are the vessel for people to experience the book in a way um, when they're not using their own eyes. It's a wonderful thing accessibility-wise. It's a wonderful thing for people who don't like to read and can and can just listen do you feel the pressure of being the interpretation of the author's work sometimes but i I try to let that go Mm -hmm. um at the end of the day 
what you're hearing is my interpretation of the text. Mm -hmm. There's no getting around it. Right. I even if I tried to remain as neutral as possible, whatever that means in quotes, um, I'm still bringing myself to it. And so whoever's listening to the audiobook is not only hearing it through my voice, but through my whole self. I'm bringing myself to it through, you know, my eyes, mind, body, spirit. I so I, I've pretty much accepted that. I, I want to stay in touch with what the author, their intentions, but then I've got to keep that in mind and then just bring myself to it. Mm -hmm. And if that resonates with people, fantastic. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. I wish it did. Mm -hmm. So I haven't, I guess... I haven't, I haven't, sorry, <laughs> I haven't thought oh. about that in a while, but I, I think I have come to a place of acceptance with that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't feel a lot of pressure in most cases. I think that's where my question about the relationship with the author comes in, right? Because a cover designer, as I learned, often also doesn't really have interaction with an author unless they have questions or unless there's, you know, some other thing in there. But it's, it's again, it is somebody else's interpretation and it is the very first thing that a reader experiences with a book. Something else that makes reading unique is that everybody has their own interpretation of it when they're reading it on the page. I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who thought the name was Hermie One forever uh, because... Yeah. <laughs> My <laughs> husband just brought that up. That's what he oh, thought that, too. And I got so I got funny. a good laugh out of that. <laughs> <laughs> but right, for our listeners who, who might not understand the reference, um, reading the first Harry Potter books, I didn't know how how Hermione was pronounced. And because I didn't listen to an audiobook or I didn't see the movie because the movie hadn't come out yet, um, I was left to my own devices. And so I guess, you know, a reader has you as their as their guide. And reading compared to seeing a movie, you know, a movie being a story immortalized on screen, you're sort of an in-between where mm -hmm. people can interpret a book and and visualize things in their head, right? Because it's they're not seeing the visuals in front of them, but in a way they are being told that it's pronounced Hermione, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this almost in-between medium that lives forever and interpreted in your way forever, which is very cool. Um, you have done some incredible and very exciting, notable books, to mention a few. They both die at the end. A Rick Riordan book, recently Groundskeeping, which came out last year. Um, the Great Believers, obviously, incredible book. I think notably, Simon versus the Homo Sapiens agenda. Homo That's right, Sa yeah. Right. Homo Sapiens. AKA Love, Simon. These are some really important books, I think, in the canon, both for literary people, for LGBT people. Um, I mean, I saw that you've done some Animorphs books, like talk about an exciting opportunity for millennials, you know, so can you talk a little bit about the impact of some of the work that you've done recently? You know what I mean? Can you talk a little bit about the stakes of it all and what that means to you? Well, I try not to let it overwhelm me for say the great believers is a great example i'm i'm very honored to be connected with that that novel in any way um 
because it's amazing. Yeah. Um, For anyone who's listening, please go read The Great Believers. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's wonderful. The good thing I take from that is I, I, it's inspiring and exciting to be in such amazing company mm. and to be associated with these great works. I try not to let that add too much pressure. <laughs> I'm usually pretty good at that. I mean, I can get very in my head about many things, but... I do a good job of letting that go. And again, I tap into, okay, in the end, it doesn't matter who the author is. I was hired because they want my unique interpretation and voice on this project. So I just focus on that and commit to that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's lowbrow, highbrow, whatever. Do you, does one stand out to you as like a, as a favorite that you've done or one that you're very proud of? Oh, yes. Well, I have one to add. Mm. Um, I just did one that was really exciting for me. Uh, Pat Conroy is one of my favorite authors. Oh, wow. And uh, I just did recorded the newest audiobook production of his novel, The Great Santini, which was really exciting for me. Very exciting. I'm apprehensive to say this to you. It's not dissimilar from judging a book by its cover. I'm so embarrassed to tell you this. I never, ever, ever listen to an audiobook at, at its regular speed as intended. Can you, and you must know obviously that people often listen to them at a faster speed. Is that ever something that you take into consideration? Let me also say that like, we, I know that there's a lot of love and care that goes into every pause and nuance, et cetera, for an audiobook narrator not dissimilar from reading on the page. Is that something that you ever have in your head as you are going through this process? Or can you talk about how maybe you feel about it? Well, okay. I, uh, if it enhances your experience, good, go for it. Uh, what I will say though, and I've said this before on record, uh, if you're not listening at the recorded speed, I don't want to hear your critique. Because mm -hmm. you haven't listened to the project as it was intended. 100%. That's completely fair. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's not my preference. I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I, I, I do not like enhancing the speed. I've, I've played mm -hmm. with that just to see what it's like. And mm -hmm. I don't like it. Um, I want to hear all the little nuances and the humanity that that the reader brings to it and i i don't want to gloss over that that's me as a listener and you know to not that i need to defend myself but in my own defense i will say i have a very hard time listening to fiction audiobooks i take a lot of time as a reader and i hear all of the voices in my head and it's like a long process for me and so i like like to be at my own speed and on my own journey and and absorb in a story in my own way so fiction i read i will often listen to nonfiction audiobooks and and for me i like kind of it's about getting the kind of meat and potatoes of it all rather mm -hmm. than the nuance. That makes um, sense to me, yeah. Yeah, and I think that I probably don't listen to audiobooks, fiction audiobooks, for exactly what you're, why you're saying you do listen to fiction audiobooks, because I, I want to do my own interpretation. So it's very interesting, and I think... And I think to your point of not being able, you know, you're not allowed to judge it if you're not listening to it as intended. I think that that makes total sense. What do you think makes a good or bad narration as you're listening to audiobooks yourself? 
think the best narrators are sensitive readers. They, mm. you got to open yourself up to every little shift in the page, in the text, and 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 write it. You know, I'm getting very like Susanna Berryman, Ithaca, hippie <laughs> scene study right now. But like, I can hear when someone reading the book is just spitting out the words, like they're faking being present and they're not really present and sensitive to what's on the page. I hear a difference and some people prefer that. Cool. Uh, that's not my preferred style as a listener or as a, as a narrator. Um, yeah, something that I saw another uh, audiobook narrator say is that they're not necessarily looking to make it perfect. They want it to be right. And I think that's a way of saying, I think, what you're describing, right? It's it's not about just reading the words on the page. It's about embodying the words on the page in a way that is right and does justice to the material. Yeah, I agree. So you've said that you are a reader yourself or a listener yourself. Since this is a part of the Books That Changed My Life Festival, I have to know, Michael, what is a book that changed your life? Or books, you're allowed to say books. Okay. I'll pick one. <laughs> um, though, well, trying to think about that. There's very, very, very few that have just moved me so deeply that I had to have like a crying moment. And one of those was The Great Believers. Mm. And the other one, speaking of Pat Conroy, was The Prince of Tides. Mm. Um, in, there was just some stuff with that book that, that I've really carried with me over the years, so I could say it changed my life. And there's a quote uh, that in families, there are no crimes beyond forgiveness. And like, that's something that really moved me. I love that. Are you when you do some of your own narration, do you find that you're moved by passages or lines or things like that? Oh yeah. yeah. That's my favorite thing about this work is that mm -hmm. I can have those intimate moments with the text in this quiet little booth and I I can have an honest moment communing with this passage that really moved me in this intimate environment and it gets shared with people, you know, just whispered into their ears and mm -hmm. maybe it moves them the same way it did me. I love, I love yeah, that. That's very special. Thank you so much for being here. I'm happy to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Is there, and if people have like audio, uh, audible accounts, can you, can you like follow a, a reader? Is that, is that a thing? I, I don't have an Audible account, so I don't actually know. But if people are like, oh, I want to listen to more of this guy's books, is that, a, is that a thing? They can follow you on there? Matt, yes, you could search on Audible for Michael Crouch. 368 titles. That's yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is a lot. You know, that, that's everything from really, really long solo narrations to full cast projects where I had just a few lines, but yeah, yeah. a lot. You should keep a, well, not any, you know, you're, you're, pa you're past the point of no return, but you should have kept like a, a Google doc of, or a spreadsheet of the, of your word count. So you oh, can, word count. yeah. So in the future you could be like, yeah, I've read 748 thousand words although it's probably well over in the millions by now 368 oh. titles oh, oh my yes God. absolutely it's it's it, 
in the millions. Just out of curiosity. All right. So what did we say it was between 70,000 and 120,000? Let's say 85,000 times 368. 31 million words. Oh. Um, that's a, that, see, that would be like a fun little thing to put on your website. You're welcome. You can credit me later. Okay. Um, have a great rest of your day. Thank you for your time. Mazel tov on all the things. And, uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you. All right. Bye. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. Matt. Thanks for listening. Conversations at the JCC are made possible by Zabars and Zabars.com. The Books That Changed My Life Festival is made possible thanks to the Harold and Fang Foundation, the Israel Office of Cultural Affairs, the Consulate General of Israel, New York, PJ Library, and in partnership with the Jewish Book Council. You can shop the festival books with our partner, Bookster Magic, a family-owned independent bookstore in Brooklyn committed to being a welcoming, friendly, and inclusive space for all people. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our editor is Matt Temkin with music written and performed by Peril Wolf. We'll be back in two weeks with another behind-the-scenes look at the world of books. In the meantime, we hope you'll join us at the festival. Don't forget to check out book-festival.mmjccm.org for more information. And make sure to listen to our other podcast episodes. Like and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when the latest episode drops. Until next time.